I feel like Sam Reed is in some way some sort of karmic salve for people who could never understand why the fuck Tom Cruise played Lestat ever. Greetings and welcome to Vampire Insider, the unofficial podcast dedicated to recapping and reacting to AMC's new television series that reimagines Anne Rice's interview with the vampire and is also part of the AMC's Immortal Universe. In each episode, hosts Joanne Palumbo, Christina LaRusso, and myself, Mark Snedeker, summarize the episode talk about Easter eggs, discuss standout characters, interrogate inconsistencies between the book and the series, dissect our favorite characters and their arcs, and provide a body count. Please join us now as we dive into episode one in Throes of Increasing Wonder. This episode is brought to you by OnlyFangs.com. Before we begin couple of trigger warnings obviously it's a vampire show there'll be a lot of murder blood mayhem but more importantly we want to discuss that there are mentions and discussions of suicide in this episode we will be providing some resources for you at the end of the show in case that is a concern or if you have any feelings of harming yourself or others Allow me now to introduce my co-hosts. Hello, Christina LaRusso. Hi, Mark Snedeker. Hello, Joanne Palumbo. Hi, Mr. Snedeker. I mean, we've been waiting for it for a long time. To quote the great American poet, Kenny Loggins, this is it. Make no mistake where you are, okay? <laughs> this is it. So first, we're going to take some immediate reactions, some hot takes. Joni, did you like this show at all? Oh, my gosh, Mark. It was perfection. After the first time watching it, I've watched it three times now, I was emotionally drained from how excited I was. The first time I did watch it, I have to admit, I found the first 20 minutes or so to be a little slow, only because I think I was just so anticipating getting to the meat of it, seeing Lestat, seeing Louis as a vampire. So I was kind of just a little ahead of myself. But on the second and third rewatch, I come to appreciate those parts because that is it's so critical, obviously, to his story. So, I mean, I give it a 10 out of 10. It was just everything and then some. Now, Joanne, you did uh, say that you were drained at the end of this. <laughs> and you said you wanted to get to the meat of this. Do you want to tell us anything else about your experience? <laughs> I was a little turned on. I have no doubt of that. <laughs> I don't think anybody else does either. I know you you were dying to see this thing and it gave you what you wanted, right? And then some, yeah. So How about my, you? My first impression is, first of all, now obviously I'm not going to be as fangirly as you guys because, you know, not a girl. but Or a woman. Or whatever. <laughs> whatever you guys are these days. <laughs> oh, God. First of all, the cinematography on, the, on this show for a TV show, for fuck's sake, is amazing. The lighting is subtle. The colors are all brown and bronze. Just so rich. You feel transported to that age in a way that you usually only do in a movie, in, a, in cinema. But as I think Christina 
discussed maybe last week, TV is becoming more cinematic all the time, right? It's starting to step into those shoes where you can have a big production and a lavish production and attention to detail that you don't normally see in a TV show. And these guys nailed it. The actor that plays Lestat either has the most resonant voice of all time or they're somehow digitally altering it. Because he's like, well, Louie. And he's like echoing. And I'm like, is that the voice of God? What's going on here? <laughs> so, I mean, that guy, you know, Lestat Williams, <laughs> the Australian vampire, was he, is, he has a great, rich, melodic voice. He could... My mom used to have this saying that for certain actors, she says, I would pay to listen to them read the phone book. And this guy, you know, is like, Connor, Sarah. And you're like, yeah, I'll listen to the whole, all the C's. That's fine. I'm listening to everything. He just has that great, rich, melodic voice. So that was my first hot take. Christina, why don't you tell us what yours was and please don't use any pornographic imagery. (laughs) Wow. Um, First of all, I would like to thank AMC. I feel like you gave me a personal gift the day after Hurricane Ian came through Florida. Fucked up up Florida pretty good. They released this episode. It was like a little present. (laughs) It was released early, so this was on Friday. Unfortunately, Mark and I had to travel. We had to find a place where we could get actual Wi-Fi to be able to listen to this thing. We're like driving all over Vero, and she's like, do I have a signal yet? I'm like, nope, not yet. Talk about dedication. Right, exactly. So we, we drove and we parked in the Panera in front of Target, and we finally found a place we could stream it. That's right. So uh, as both of you said, I thought it was impeccable. I am a book purist and probably the most amongst us. You are a big book nerd. I loved the attention and the reverence that was paid. Just so many references to the source material. I loved the actors. I loved the scenery. I think that you brought up an interesting point saying that the way it was lit, the sort of sepia tint right for sure and it really does take you to that time and i'm i'm very interested to sort of watch how that happened because they'll go through time they'll progress through time here and i'm so excited to watch that unfold joanne you mentioned the first time that you watch it you thought it was a little bit slow when i watched it i really relished that segment and i think it's because it provided a nice little bit of exposition that otherwise I think would have been cumbersome. And also, I'm really attached to this Daniel character. I'm really interested in where, what his story is. I wasn't when I first read the books, but now it's just Eric Bogosian. For yeah, me. he's great. Uh, so uh, so I'm, I'm really, really, really interested in that. So for me, those 20 minutes, I loved them. And I loved sort of looking around at Louis and how Louis is now. And I'm excited to sort of say, well, here's who he is in the present. How does he get here? And that's that's the whole story, right? So very, very eager for that to happen. So, Christina, yeah, that, it took me the second and third time to really appreciate it. But I, I am on the same level as you are with it. But I just want to say before we move on, because I want this on the record, I'm making a prediction. This show is going to sweep next year's Emmys. I'm talking acting, story, directing, costume. I'm predicting it now. Mark it down. I want some sort of award for it when it comes true. I'm telling you, 
this show is that remarkable, it's going to win everything. If that does not occur, I will be raising my pitchfork <laughs> and, and torches and torches and storming whatever academy it is that makes these decisions. Because I agree with you, it should. If it doesn't, it should. This was a first episode, you guys. Out of the box. I mean, the bar is high, really high. Yeah, you got to be careful because you guys are like, this is the greatest thing ever. Now there's nowhere to go but down. Okay, so this episode is basically setting the stage for everything. You learn about where Daniel is in his life. You learn where Louis is in his life and where Louis is in his life is Dubai living in a penthouse in high style. And the penthouse is his coffin because it has special windows that keep the sun out. Oh, it's everything. How cool was that? It was awesome. He put his, at one point he put his arm in front of the ray of sun and just watched him just start to disintegrate. It was, Oh God. Fantastic. Yeah, um, I love watching people disintegrate too. So, you know, it sets up that Daniel and, and Louis are going to have this interview. Much re interview. A re interview. It's a second chance. It's a, you know, a do over, as Daniel says. And they end up starting the story of how Louis became a vampire, which is where we first encounter Louis prior to being his vampire self. So we go back to New Orleans, 1910, in the Storyville section, which is essentially functioning as their red light district. And we get to see Louis's job, right? This is what he does. He is running girls and liquor and card games. And you can see that he has a measure of respect from the community because obviously he's had to kick some ass at some point. Like, you know, when the guy gets injured in his, in his, uh, how, his den of iniquity, as we say, first the guy treats him like... Well, he calls him the N-word. Yeah, he calls him, he treats him like he would treat any, you know, person of color, which is in, with, in a derogatory way. And he says, uh, by the way, just so you know, I'm uh, Louis uh, Point de Lac. And uh, he's like, oh... Mr. Pa and he mispronounces it, right? He goes, oh, Mr. Pondelock. I found it kind of interesting that he walks up to the alderman to help him. And he says, you know, the N-word, don't, don't touch me. Yet he was there having sex with a black woman. I make that make sense. And, <laughs> exactly. and, and, and for more contradictions, obviously, he treated her disrespectfully, according to her. And I believe mm -hmm. her, but then also professed his love, right? Yeah. She's a cunny, and then she's the most beautiful woman in the world. Yep. Guess what? It is the least surprising thing ever that racist philosophical views might not be entirely consistent. Right? <laughs> They're not well-reasoned or well-structured. Big shock. Not right. the brightest. So from there, we kind of move on then into uh, the introduction of Lestat and how he's kind of shadowing Louis and keeps popping up you know, where Louis is and he meets his family and he's insinuating himself into Louis's life. Yes. Well, and Louis says it, I'm, I was being hunted, but I didn't really realize it. And I, you know, I wonder if Lestat would see it as hunting as much as, you know, like courting, courting him yeah. or coming to in some way Seducing seduce him. him. Right. So that's, I think what, and, and Louis references the seduction actually seduce is probably the best word because Louis references it in the interview that is kind of interspersed with the historical stuff with the interview. And he says, Daniel, you're rushing ahead. Let the story seduce you as it seduced me. And I think for Lestat, all those things mean the same thing. 
hunting, no. seducing. I think he sees it as love. It, it, to him, he's just loving him. When yeah. in reality, it's, you know, restraining order worthy at best. Again, <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong, right? So he's and he's and he's doing mental tricks on him and things like that. So it's 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 an interesting. Again, here's here's Lestat, who is clearly being a narcissist and em- employing tactics that people, when they talk about relationships with narcissists, employ, which is you know trying to isolate you from your family and and kind of trying to monopolize all your time and following you know watching what you, not not necessarily physically following, but watching carefully what someone's doing. So it's it's interesting to see that relationship unfolding that way and how Lestat is is pictured doing all of these things. Right. Louis really enjoyed the little boyfriend boyfriend action of going to the opera and their dinners and helping him pick out clothing more suitable to this time era. Not that I'm condoning what Lestat did, but you know, Louis was bit of a cock tease. Well, he, right? I mean, are, you, are you saying that he asked for it? <laughs> wow, Joanne. <laughs> maybe no. maybe he shouldn't have been wait. wearing such tight pants. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get exactly what you're saying, right? Because Louis is obviously fascinated. Yeah, he's fascinated by Lestat. He's attracted to him, even though he's kind of in a little bit of self-denial there. And But at a certain point, he's like, I can't do this. What, what am I doing? You know, and he backs out and then Lestat is back and then he goes all in. Yeah. And it comes that it's difficult for Louis being a black, you know, an openly gay black man in that time era. Those that's the very thing that Lestat wants him to embrace by giving him this dark gift makes him that powerful that his station has now risen above the white man that brings up an interesting an interesting thing that's happening here with race which is Lestat on one hand is being portrayed as somebody who is as a European of that time would have been not as racist as a somebody from the United States it's hard to beat us in racism no right that's one of our best things really is so uh but he's meant to be this guy who's obviously less racist because he's European. And that that point is highlighted multiple times. Most obviously, I thought, when Louis gave the gift of the trip around the world and he says, you'll start out of New York in steerage, but once you get to Europe, everything will be first class. His sister is a woman of color. And he's... Oh, right? So you're seeing he... Uh, Again and again throughout the uh, series or the episode, you're, it's reinforced that Lestat, that Europeans, that, uh, you know, they are more advanced in terms of racism. However, what Lestat does is very white savior. I can't turn my eyes away from that either. I can't pretend that that doesn't exist, you know, right. and especially down to the point that, Joanne, you're, you're highlighting, which was Lestat saying to him, you're in this situation where you are frowned upon by these people who are inferior to you and your beauty is such that, you know, like, I love you. I see you. You're forced to play all of these roles that are not your nature. And I can give you this dark gift. And that's like this very white for me, white savior thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh, wow, that's interesting. And I am I am curious to see how or if that evolves throughout the course of the series. So ultimately what ends up happening is uh, Louis's brother, Paul, who is this religious zealot and has kind of this thread throughout the show. He he's also Paul was the truth teller. 
Paul was, even though he was, he was almost, it's almost like Cassandra yelling, you know, the, the Greeks are coming yeah. and no one believes her because they think she's touched. Right. But, but Paul's kind of the same way. He's saying things. And, and I think Louis even says that he said these things and he wasn't wrong necessarily about some of the things that he said um, about, about Louis, about, you know, the criticisms, but Paul would say what he saw. Yeah. And he very clearly did not trust Lestat. Yeah. Good call, Paul. He, he the devil, Bobby yeah, Boucher. Was, that, which is an odd question. You know, you bring a friend to dinner, your your family doesn't typically go, so what is your relationship with Christina? Yeah. You know? So what he, are your intentions he here, Joanne? <laughs> yeah. What are you planning on doing with her later? You know, so he definitely picked up on that, that there's a, a romantic link between them. And he didn't seem thrilled about it by the way he asked the question so i think then uh really how it wraps up is this situation where paul kills himself pushes louis as it did in the book pushes louis to this point of kind of desperation and despair and he is at that point he says i was I was absolutely easy prey for someone who for someone who was who was looking and that happened to be Lestat and Lestat takes advantage of him in the sense that he gets into his head and then you see this big scene at the end where Louis flees to the church which is his touchstone and in the church here he's trying to confess to the priest and he says all of his confessions he gives all of his confessions and then Lestat comes in. Yeah, in let's just temper. say, I think at this point, let's just say it didn't work out great. No, in the <laughs> end for the priests, not too, not too great. So you're in this church and all of this is going down. This is Lestat's anger being taken out really on his father and on the, on the church, church and, and all of this anger and his frustration humans. with Louis. And then they come, they finally come together and, and he gives him, but he asks him, I can give you, I can take all of this away. And even though I've manipulated you to this point, I want you to give you the illusion of free will. Right. So just nod. Oh, was that a nod? Yeah, I guess it was. And, chomp, chomp, chomp. And then that's it. And they become, and then, and Louis becomes a vampire. As he says, it's the, it was the end and the beginning. And that is the end and the beginning for, for us. So that scene in the church was, was extremely moving because the way Lestat broke down Louis's life was really sad you know he said to him all these hats that you're forced to wear every room you enter you're the stern landlord the deferential businessman the loyal son you conform to all these roles but none of them are your true nature and he said to him you must choke on your rage and sorrow and he's just basically telling him like dude your life is one big lie, and I can take that all away from you. And this guy is sitting there at his darkest moment. His mother's blaming him for his brother's suicide. He thinks he's going crazy and, and with thought in his head. He just saw him tear apart two priests. It was just, he was, you will never find somebody more vulnerable than, than Louis was in that moment. And then again, the words, the dialogue that was said to him just, pushed him over the edge and that's right when he just started nodding his head and here we go now he's a vampire and now he's a vampire and obviously as this progresses as the story progresses we'll learn how that impacts him because of course this dark gift 
you know, is it dark or is it, you know, dark gift? Was it darker or is it more of a gift? You know, I mean, it's it, comes going, with some strings. it certainly does come with strings. So it's, it's a lot, but yes, I thought for an out of the gate uh, episode, this, this was outstanding. And now the Easter egg of the week is brought to you by our sponsor, OnlyFangs.com. OnlyFangs, online access to your favorite vampires. Ever find yourself wondering what the neighborhood vampire looks like naked? Are you attracted to these sexy night walkers, but just don't have the nerve to approach one? Well, you've come to the right place. Check out OnlyFangs.com, the internet's premier website for sexy undead content creators. Warning, live interactions may be interpreted as invitations to the vampire and are not the responsibility of OnlyFangs LLC or its subsidiaries. All right, so guys, we have four Easter eggs that we found uh, in this first episode. The first one is more of a nod to the Mayfair witches. It's the breakfast scene where they're talking about Louis' sister Grace getting married and jumping the broom. And Paul says, well, there's plenty of brooms down the street at the Mayfair sister's home. And, you know, she gets all upset and says, Mama, he's, he's calling me a witch. So that was a not so subtle nod to the next show coming, the Mayfair Witches. Also, another one that we found was at the very beginning when Daniel is watching his video that he gives instruction about journalism. He's sitting in his living room and there's a stack of books behind him and right over his left shoulder, it says Savage Garden. So it's a nod to a quote of Lestat started with in the savage garden you shine beautifully my friend da, 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 da. mark did you happen to notice any uh, i mean you know do vampires drink blood of course <laughs> i noticed a couple first of all the savage garden one was a very good catch by joanne because i didn't notice it right yeah which is a little shocking i mean for those of you who know me yes <laughs> but um, one of the cool easter eggs that christina and i actually noticed when we were watching the uh, show the second time right well mark you noticed it i noticed it but you then i said christina do the research and figure out what the fuck that was i just saw <laughs> so, so, talk about it. so the character daniel is doing a jigsaw puzzle in the beginning and of course it shows a little bit of his parkinson's there that's and, the plot purpose of that well and also the the initial view is that his you can scar, see yeah you can see his vampire been, where he's been bitten and then it focuses in on the on the uh puzzle, on the puzzle. depicts it, it took us a while to find it but that puzzle is the painting uh by bruegel the fall of the rebel angels and the painting really just shows kind of the war on heaven, right? And as the angels fall, but it's got a lot of fantastical elements in it. And the analysis of the generally accepted analysis of that painting is that it shows a mix of natural and unnatural elements. So for example, you see, you know, a frog or a butterfly, but also man-made things like armor and swords, etc. And it was intended to reflect how Bruegel felt about the new land of the Americas. Yeah. So if you think about that in terms of the show, of course, Lestat is from France. He is now discovering the new world. It was still fairly new back then. And uh, so that's a great, great, great reference. And Christina's research turned up one other additional facet to this Easter egg, which was this painting 
from Bruegel was on the wall of Armand. If you remember Armand, kind of the uh, older vampire in Paris at the uh, Théâtre de la Vampire, right? And he had this painting on his wall that Louis notices when he goes to meet uh, with Armand. And of course, Louis is is Catholic, right? And he's struggling with his relationship with God and his religion, which obviously he has some issues with, given that he is a pimp. No shame to sex workers, but you know what I'm saying. Another Easter egg was when he opens up his music box, which was the one thing he said he brought with him from France. Because, we'll of course, yep. because of course you have to travel in a fucking coffin. Right? <laughs> so you don't have a lot of you know room for luggage. Are you kidding? He had things shipped. I'm sure he did. But it plays this song that he says, well, I composed this for a violinist you know, who I knew. That violinist was Nicholas, right? His mm-hmm. lover in uh, in Paris. Well, not originally Paris, but they both moved to yeah. Paris yep, together. Yep. And Nicholas, of course, sells all his possessions so he can take lessons with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Mozart, right? Yeah, so that's a great one. And then the last Easter egg, with the dawning of the internet, we have learned a lot of things that maybe we didn't necessarily want to learn. For example, the names of certain sex acts, right? Like, And they get kind of ridiculous. You know, you're like, you know, the rusty trombone and the dirty sanchez (laughs) and all these horrible and and all yeah and all these horrible things so let me set the scene for you where is lestat coming to america from france what is the most significant architectural feature recognizable Uh, feature tower now if you remember in the scene with lily when Lestat and Louis finally pair off, they do this kind of double high five thing. <laughs> I'm going to say, I'm going to go on record as saying that is the Eiffel Tower right there. The double high five during a sex act between two guys. You idiot. I am an idiot. Oh my Leave God. Leave it to a man to notice that. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean somebody's honest got to. to God. And when we were watching it, he goes, Christina, remember this. And remember like, this scene. What? I have a joke. I'm like, what the hell? Oh, that's so good. That's so good. I was really trying to dig deep into it, and I accidentally stumbled upon something that's not an Easter egg, but I just think it's really interesting. When they first show Lestat, you know, you see him from behind, and then they kind of pan around him, and he's got a book in his hand, and it just says Blue Book on it. So I Googled what that was, And it's actually back in New Orleans in, you know, 1910. It was a directory for whorehouses. That's handy. Yeah. Gave you directions on how to get to each whorehouse. And I just thought that was a really little, you know, just another great example of the attention to detail that the creators of this show gave. That's That's a great catch, actually. Well, I'm uh, really good at this, Mark. I know. Really good. And you're looking in the right places for Easter eggs, right? You look for yeah. things like what music are they playing? What is it? You know, what's the book title in the background type of thing that, you know, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Now, can you explain how that book, which listed where, where are you going to find the sex workers, became ultimately a way to find the value of your car? <laughs> can you, can you have, explain that to us? I have no way to tell you how that went from one to the other. And I I knew, though, instinctively, when I saw Blue Book, 
that it was not the value of a car. <laughs> I mean, that was a safe bet in 1910, right? Yeah. The, the attention to historical detail in this is pretty good. I, a lot of times I'll watch these things as a historian, former practicing historian, but I watch attention to detail in historical movies. And I absolutely appreciated there were, for instance, when Grace is getting married, if when she's standing there talking about it and about to get the guys to dance, she has money pinned to her yeah. dress. And that's actually a Cajun tradition right. in New or- in Louisiana. Like in your background, they would just like slip envelopes of money <laughs> yes, <laughs> to we, each other. No, you have a purse. <laughs> exactly. They're like, you know, I hope your first child is a masculine child. <laughs> and they give you an envelope of money. No, so, it's great. It's great how very much detail they put into this. So let's talk about, and by let's, I mean, let me talk about some of the differences between the show and the book. Well, I mean, it can be differences or it can be similarities. It's not exactly the same. It's obviously not exactly the same. But it is pulling the sort of kernel of what was in her story is right. is being pulled into this series much better, I think, than they did with the movie. The kernel of the story is the same. The spirit, I think, of the story is the same. But let's talk about a couple of the differences. Obviously, we've all noticed that they've slid the, the time frame forward a, a several decades to take place in 1910, right? So we, and you're going to have all the attendant changes with that. So now we're no longer in the age of slavery, but rather Jim Crow. Now, New Orleans was a very kind of progressive for its time. City was very diverse, but black people were still treated very badly. The profession and ethnic background of Louis Mm -hmm. has changed in a very interesting way. I think. So I kind of like that. They've definitely leaned into the homosexuality where in the books it was sort of hinted at and glossed over a bit. Leaned into it. I would say that it went from being the subtext to being the actual story. I mean, that's I a mean, big part of it, right? Yeah, this is, it's very, a lot of gay going on. I was turned on. I was, you, wow. Okay, you do so you, girl. Let's get the, let's dig into that a little be, bit be later. Be who you be. <laughs> I want to hear more about that. All right. So for me, the book, it is subtext, but it is very clearly what she's talking about there. She's very clearly talking about them being in love in the book. And so I would say while it is explicitly noted in this, that is exactly in line with what the book was doing. The movie is the outlier on that. Right. Yeah. You're not going to, if you read the book, you're not going to be surprised to have Louis say, I'm fighting against my inclinations or whatever Mm -hmm. he said. But she still never says that word. You know, she constructs a male-male relationship, but she doesn't make it explicit. Now, it's definitely explicit. And that's, I mean, that's, I think it would be silly in this day and age not to, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's clearly what was going on. Uh, One difference is in the book, and now I'm, when I say the book, I'm now referring to the vampire Lestat. Mm -hmm. Lestat doesn't learn how to read at the monastery. Mm -hmm. In fact, that's one of his big complaints is that nobody will teach this guy how to read. Mm-hmm. So, and where she, he's talking in this show about reading the writings of such and such mm-hmm. and whatever. Aquinas, he, he wasn't that scholarly. And that in the book, that becomes an issue for him when he comes and meets with Louis, who's very well educated, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So he feels a little insecure about that in the, in the book and not so much in this. 
there's obviously a difference in the way Paul dies. In the book, they make it a little ambiguous, like he falls down the stairs and dies, but they make it a little ambiguous as to whether or not Louis gave him a little help there. Well, there's some speculation in the book that he did, but then he... Like it's not, it's actually a much more supernatural force. Right. That, that's the question. It, yeah. Was it supernatural? But, but this makes it very clearly look like Paul, he's crazy and he killed himself. He's well, they make it so that Paul is, it's very clearly a choice that Paul is making that he had, he's suffering from mental illness, illness, so some kind of a mental illness and then chooses to end his own life. Yeah. Cause the birds in his head told him to do it. Um, and I think that's the major things. I mean, obviously the plot in, in that it's set in a different time period and it's a TV show, not a book. You're going to see a lot more differences, but those are some of the ones that jumped out at me. If anybody else has others. I do like that they didn't go the way of the movie with his wife and child dying, that they stuck with the book and it was the brother and it followed, you know, that he was a religious zealot and was having these hallucinations of sorts and, I'm glad that they stuck with it that way rather than the the wife and everything. And that was what ultimately was, you know, obviously Louis tipping point into Lestat's arm. As far as differences go, you pretty much got them all marked. You're perfect. Well, I mean, mean, I'm pretty used to that. So don't even bother complimenting me. I just Uh, know it. One of the things that I noticed to the point of Paul's uh, uh, religiosity being in full force in this. What I like about that is that that follows through with Rice's book because a lot of her book is about good versus evil and grappling with where does Louis fit into the universe? If there is a God, is he a part of God's vision and or not? And that's, you know, then that's a a callback to the jigsaw puzzle that we know in the the fall is this idea of like, where do I fit in? And am I one of the unnatural things that's maybe depicted in that in that artwork. So the other thing about this religiosity is it allows for just a bigger, broader framing of this, which is true to Rice's novel. And I love that. The fact that Louis is turned in a church versus the wood. I think that that is purposeful because two of the things that are similar is the bringing back of the, of, of um, religion, but then also Mark, you mentioned the homosexual relationship. Yeah. All of that allows a much bigger conversation to go on around this film. I mean, I keep calling it a film, but it's not, it's a series. It's just so cinematic. You can't help it. It's so cinematic. (laughs) I can't help it. Okay. But within this series, this is going to allow them to have some very interesting, because eventually they're going to have to create things off book, or those are the things that. You can't that the book didn't tell you, but may have happened within the the fullness of time within that book. So you'll get to see more and different stories and situations that these people are going through. And those questions, religion, race, sexuality, those are going to be huge conversations within this universe. And I love that. It draws that line just a little more sharply. And now if you can't see that now this is going to be a discussion in the subtext about sexuality and acceptance, then you're not really paying attention. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think it's going to be subtextual. Joanne, what about you? I agree. It's front and center. You know, when I said earlier that it turned me on, it was the sensuality of the moment when the two of them were with Lily. As they're both undressing and looking at each other, it was just so sensual. It wasn't like smut. It was just really well done. Well, it it was passion. 
It was passion, yeah. and it was it, it was it, you knew you know that Lestat loves him by the time they're sitting at that card table. Just the way that he looks at him. Actually, the first night they meet, you can see that Lestat is he is in love. At this, he is at this in point. Love. I'm going to differ with you a little bit. I'm going to say I will buy that Lestat is infatuated. Love is, we shall see. Right? No, no, Lestat has said, said he was searching for his companion and he saw him and realized. Right. So this is a love at first sight. Now, see, that's you projecting. That's right, because that's bullshit. <laughs> no, I think it's love at first sight. I think that we have identified some of, you're never going to get them all, but some of the differences and similarities between book and show. And honestly, in addition to that, we were also talking about movie versus book and show. Mm -hmm. That's going to make a nice discussion point and it's interesting. And we'll keep talking about this each week uh, and we'll just see where it goes. All right, so guys, we got to meet three of our four main characters on this first episode. And Christina, who to you is the standout character amongst them? Or maybe it was a you know side character, but for you, who was the standout in this Oh, episode? please. This is so hard to guess right now. I don't know who it will All ever right. be. It has to be Lestat for me. <laughs> oh, really? That What a shock. <laughs> Joanne, are you super shocked by that? I'm shocked. I, I, yeah, I can't believe it. I feel like Sam Reed is in some way some sort of karmic salve for people who could never understand why the fuck Tom Cruise played Lestat ever. You didn't like Lestat Pittston? No, I did not. <laughs> he has an ability with this character to capture something that is very clear about Lestat in the book subsequent to interview. So um, Vampire Lestat on. Lestat is both vile and evil and charming. And he is a lot, but he is also, I think, subdued. That is what he is serving me. He is serving me this guy who is so extra. And you would has, like him to serve you. And, <laughs> and has all of these powers that he has to keep in check and all of these urges, right, that he has to keep in check because he's, you know, he wants to feed. But just the way that he gestures, the way that he holds himself back, you can see that he's got all of these powers that he holds himself back and you can see that. And through the whole thing, he's sort of you know that there's something under the surface of him, and he has several moments where he kind of breaks out, his temper breaks out. Um, one is at the dinner with Louis' parents, but then another is when the end, the whole the whole situation. In it was the, pretty in savage the, in, the in the church. Is a big temper tantrum. That's a big temper tantrum from him. But he's just he holds this power, but he kind of keeps it in check. And in the same way, his character is a lot. His personality is a lot, but you can also see this sort of sophisticated, urbane dude who is able to keep things kind of under his control, literally and figuratively. If you're an actor, a talented actor that's looking for that big challenge and that big fun role, this is what you choose, right? 100%. They love playing bad guys that are complicated and he can be big in this role, if you know what I mean. Yeah. You can be, you know, you have to have an outsized personality. You have to be, you know, grandiose in your savagery. 
and also in your passion and caring, right? And he gets to do all of that. Right. As much as he is grand and he is he's this big presence, he also is so very graceful with his gestures, like when he hands him his car his business card. And I paid attention to this. He never he never shook. The actor didn't shake. He wasn't quaking. A lot of times you'll see actors whose hands quiver. are quivering, yeah. right? But he didn't. He It was just effortless. Everything, everything he does as he kind of transitions from English into French. He, it's just very smooth. He embodies Lestat in a way that I was, that, that Tom Cruise didn't even, there was, that wasn't even in the same solar system as Tom Cruise's capacity as an actor to do you just hate tom cruise no i don't <laughs> yes he you just do could not tom cruise is not capable of he doesn't doing have that what kind of range doing. he doesn't have that range so for me the thrilling aspect of seeing lestat brought to life in such a manner has been just it was amazing i just want to kind of piggyback off of what you just said about how sam reed really played just from this one episode that we've seen lestat way better than tom cruise did Louis also outshines Brad Pitt. Um, <gasps> Whoa. He's got Girl. Yeah, a pig coming from me, okay? Wow. As far as standout character goes, Christina, I agree with your description and everything that you said about Lestat. He is just wicked and charismatic and just absolutely yummy. And I found myself the whole time like loving him and being scared of him and loving him and being scared and back and forth. But I didn't choose him. Actually did not choose a standout character because Daniel, Louis, and Lestat, in my mind, were just all fantastic. But I did kind of pick out some of my favorite moments from each one of them. Oh, okay. So, all right. Just don't listen to the rules, Joanne. Just do what you want, really. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm here to bring the Jersey sass, and Jersey girls don't follow rules. So I'm going to start with Daniel. My favorite moment that made me love Daniel was when he's sitting in the penthouse with Louie and Louie says to the to the caretaker, go, you know, have chef prepare a meal and get his room ready. Our boy is tired. And Daniel just whips his head around and says, I'm not your fucking boy. I was and so what I good. Loved, right? And what I loved about that moment though is the balls on that guy. Yeah, because that because guy could because Louie could kill him in point three seconds. Right. And five minutes earlier, he just said to Louie, my editor, I told him I'm interviewing the most dangerous man in the world. That's how you talk to the most dangerous man in the world. You've got balls there. So that was my take on Daniel. Can you say balls one more time? Balls. Balls. <laughs> balls. <laughs> Sorry, my, I'm so like worked up. My jersey's coming I know. Out. Obviously, what was that? My favorite moment was his speech that he gave to Louis right before he turns him and offers him the dark gift. And he says, I, I can swap this life of shame for the dark gift. And just kind of really just basically told him his life sucks in such an elegant and beautiful way. And it was so seductive that I was nodding my head going like, yeah, like, take me, like, let's do this. Like, I'm ready to go. Turn me into a vampire. It, the acting of Sam Reed is just top notch, phenomenal. But by far, and this is kind of a weird moment, but I don't know why this was my favorite moment of the show. 
but it was the scene where Louis and Lestat and Lily are just wrapping up their, you know, when they first meet on the balcony and Lestat takes Lily away and it cuts back to Louis with Daniel Malloy. And Louis says, emasculation and admiration in equal measure. I wanted to murder the man and I wanted to be the man. That line right there tells you everything you need to know about the stack. And the way that Louis delivered it, was, it just gave me shivers because I'm like, there is no better way than to describe Lestat than that. And that's why for me, I had a really difficult time choosing because I loved all three of those kind of quirky moments throughout the show. But that emasculation and admiration really just sums Lestat up. He'll cut you down, but then make you feel like you're, you're everything to him with a just a glance. It's, it's awesome. To me, one of the things that you're highlighting here is the dialogue. And right. I, like, I need to know um, who wrote this? Who are the writers working on this? I wonder if it's listed in the episode. All right, I guess it's time for me to come clean. <laughs> it was me. <laughs> I want to. I believe Rollins wrote this episode. Did he? I don't know if it was their co-writer with them, but I believe he did write it. AMC is traditionally, they build a beautiful writer's room. They did for Breaking Bad. They did for um, Better Call Saul. They just seem to find people who just know how to tell these stories. And I think that one of the best characters in this series, in this premiere episode, was the script, the, the language that they used, the way that they sewed mm-hmm. it all together. The and, and this is, you know, it's important to note that there's some humor in this. It's not, remember we talked about this in last week's episode where we said that they would work in humor and we didn't want it to become camp. Well, it's not. And I, I even have, I have examples of all that because I love those moments too. And, and I think you just actually nailed it for me, Christina, the standout character. You're right. Is the dialogue. Yeah. Fantastic episode penned by Rollin Jones. And I, I think that the script has to get, has to get that mentioned because it's just so elegantly pulls in those plot points from the novel. I, I couldn't be happier. I could not, as somebody who loves the novel, I, I personally could not be happier. I'll be interested to see if somebody complains about it. I've seen some people trying to be kind of curmudgeonly online. And everybody like, likes to be, be the kidding. contrarian, right? Yeah. You gotta be edgelord. Someone right? tried to say Anne Rice would be so pissed off they're moving away from that important plot point from her book and then they went on to talk about the uh the his wife and child dying and i'm like carl you don't know what you're talking about you're way off all right mark Mark, who was your standout character so go a little little unusual here because that's who i am that's how you do i'm gonna say one of the most hilarious characters and entertaining characters in this episode was the sex worker who objected to having it put in her butt. (laughs) (laughs) Praying that we would talk about that. She was amazing. She's like, how dare you put it in your butt? I probably would have said yes if you asked, but since you didn't, I gave you a little surprise. Which was a little disturbing, but no, I mean, uh, so for me, the, the said, real... It's like, what was her quote? That's against Jesus. Yeah, that's that against I, Jesus. I'm like, oh, okay, that's that's against Jesus, not anything else. Okay, that's good. 
referred to my cap as dinner. Yeah, I'm, I, I was trying to avoid that quote, but I guess here it is. Now it's in the podcast, and now it's official. We now have said that quote. Oh, I squirted my catfish dinner on him a little bit. <laughs> to me, that was, that was amazing. A little squirt of my catfish dinner. There you go. I love it. That was, oh, I mean, so let that be a warning to you guys. All right, so no, really for me, and I think I said this in the, even when we were just in the, in the preview and the uh, behind the scenes thing, this story, as much as Lestat is the most exciting and charismatic character and everybody loves him, this is Louis story. Mm-hmm. So Louis has to be great. So far, I would say Grey Worm is killing it. Jacob Anderson. Grey Worm. He will always be Grey Worm to me. I keep waiting for him to like snap a spear out or something. He did. Yeah, it, that's right. He did he, yeah. it, at that one point. He has to walk a much more delicate line than even Lestat. Because Lestat can be big and extravagant and wicked, but Louis has to show the conflict. Lestat's already there. He's like, I've embraced my killer nature. I'm a vampire and I fucking love it. Well, now Louis's not there yet and maybe never get there. So he has a little bit more of a tightrope to watch. First of all, one of my favorite scenes in this whole episode was when he and Paul did the tap dancing at the wedding. Because this is a, a relationship that's been strained because Paul has gotten serious, serious delusions and mental illness, it seems. And, and they've been at odds with each other. And Paul doesn't approve of Louis's lifestyle and job. And Louis is upset that Paul is fucking the family up by being certifiable. But then they pull it together for, this, for their sister's wedding. And they go back to the day. And they do this amazing duo tap dance. You remember right? their group? A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, F, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, U, and your mom, and your sister, and your job. Do you remember what it stood for? Uh, Yeah, all, what was it, all boys. No. Altar boys. Uh, altar boys can dance something for God, everywhere for God, or something like that. Everywhere, yeah. My favorite moment in that whole thing was he can see that Paul is leading up to this serious, cool breakdancing move, right? It's like, you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. And then he does it. And then they go back into harmony with each other and they're doing the same steps. I mean, that to me was a great moment. And that shows how complicated, how complex really Louis is. He hates his brother for, you know, being insane. He loves his brother and what they had. And he embraces his nature with Lestat and he fights against his nature on his, on his own and in public. He loves the opera, but he pretends he hates the opera. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a very complex and that's a harder job, I think, than the Lestat character, even though the Lestat character, I mean, obviously he killed it, but I really like how Grey Worm has handled the Louis character. And by the way, he will always be Grey Worm to me. Mm -hmm. So don't keep telling me his real name. I don't care. (laughs) He is Grey Worm. Let's um, let's jump in and talk about uh, character arcs and, and where you kind of where we kind of see the character arcs developing. What I really enjoyed about this episode is the very thing, ironically, that I didn't like when I watched it the first time, and that was learning about Louis pre-vampire. 
I love seeing what a family man he is and a provider that he is for his family. I mean, he, he what a generous wedding gift he gave to his sister, the trip around the world, the dance, like Mark just said, that he did with Paul. And he's obviously very nurturing and, and loves his family. So that obviously when Paul commits suicide, that's what breaks him. He definitely is suffering a lot with being a not only a black man in that time, but a gay black man having to keep all that down inside of him. And I'm excited to see the obvious transition of what comes next, how he handles his first however many decades of being a vampire. And I'm loving the 2022 version of him. He is sexy as fuck. Oh my God, he sure is. Christina, when he's standing in that penthouse, yeah, immediately dressed, just everything about him. I'm like, oh my God. He's everything. You are gorgeous. Absolutely stunning. And, and very, yeah, like I said, very, or like you said, very accomplished. And you can tell he's got that life. Life has smoothed things over. In fact, he compares himself in from in the beginning and he says something about being that wild thing that I was. I, or I had to be a wild thing because you had, you couldn't be seen to be weak on Liberty street. And well, and what's interesting to me about him is that you, if we're talking about character arc, we have, we see what the end result of the arc is, right? We have him from the beginning to where he is today, modern day. So his arc in so far as the scope of whatever interview and whatever his story is, that's completed. So we see the beginning and the end, which is unusual. You don't get usually that chance to have that. So we know where he's going to end up. That's going to make his character arc very fascinating to watch. You know, we, when, when we see him, he's kind of got a little bit of a pimp walk going on. And he's got that swagger of a 1910s, what you would expect of, of a pimp. And fast forward, he has just got the swagger of the just sensual, sexy, wealthy vampire that we're all drawn to, you know, kind of like a, a Matthew Claremont. He's just an enigma. And I, I just wanted to reach through the screen and just like bite him I did I wanted to bite but what, exactly what you said it, it's a very odd thing to know how a character starts and ends but not know what happens in the middle yet so when those blanks are filled in it's going to be really fascinating and the way they have told the story in just we got to remember we've only seen one episode I feel like so, we've seen um, like 30 episodes <laughs> um, you know we have six more episodes to fill in the blanks of what happened from 1910 to 2022. And I'm just super excited to see how that, you know, that that's really the meat of it. And yeah, I'm ready. Can't wait. At at least the very, start of his his character arc because now they've right. been they've been uh renewed for season two so you know that his, his, the length of time that we'll be able to watch that character arc unfold is now lengthened you know pres- pres- well, for at least two seasons um the other thing that i want to bring up here and this is the race thing and how much that conversation enriches the overall narrative to this story it's not something that they had to contend with before in, you know in the novel 
Louis and then later Claudia, because we know she is also of mixed race. This is going to this is going to play out. The story plays out on their very bodies. This very rich, big conversation that's going to be going on around Louis is is happening on his person. And because of his person, I think you're going to start to see people grapple with that. Speaking of a story being written on someone's body, here's the character arc that I'm most watching, Daniel. Because we all know kind of what's coming. Christine and I were, I don't remember, we were driving to lunch or something, but we were talking about this. The big question is going to be, I mean, Daniel is older He's sick. He's probably going to die soon, we think. Is he going to accept the gift, which we think probably will be offered to him at some point? And we've already seen a bit of his arc from kind of the young addict who obviously had some, you know, some initial talent, but it was squandered to now kind of the hard-bitten, cynical, seasoned reporter who, you know, wants to share his wisdom with others. And now he's revisiting kind of the scene of the crime, right? His original interview with uh, Louis. And how's he going to react differently? Is he going to be more accepting of this way of being or less accepting? Because originally he tried to make a play to say, yes, I want this. Because, of course, he was an addict. He was struggling with, you know, whatever in his life. And he was going to embrace that change without really understanding, I suspect, what it meant. Well, he's older now, but he has autoimmune disease and he's, you know, more fragile physically. Is he going to embrace this in a more mature way? Or is he going to say, you know what, I'm fine with mortality. Let me go. So that's really kind of, he's kind of the Greek chorus here, right? Mm-hmm. He's judging Louis' story and he's going to judge Louis' choices as much as Louis is, I think. And we'll see how that works out. That's the one I'm kind of watching. I find that question to be particularly interesting and it's one I'd like to explore as we go through uh, the season. Well, so uh, with character arc, I think we, we have a lot to be able to discuss each week because we'll be able to see, and sometimes it'll, the, uh, the arc will move faster or slower. And I'm obviously just, we're going to see a, a new character appear on the, on the screen here. So I can't wait for her. I know, I know. All right, so we're going to take a quick break here and the body count of the week is brought to you by our sponsor, OnlyFangs.com. Only Fangs, online access to your favorite vampires. Ever wish you could get up close and personal with the vampire next door? Do you crave interaction with a lord or a lady of the dead without the risk of being eaten? Sign up today in the comfort of your own home and enter the world of the undead. All of our creators are certified authentic. No plastic fangs here. Warning, live interactions may be interpreted as invitations to the vampire and are not the responsibility of OnlyFangs LLC or its subsidiaries. So, the body count this week. Now, of course, there are always going to be bodies that we can't account for. We assume that Lestat is out there running rampant, eating people, because, of course, they keep talking about the fever Mm -hmm. and all that stuff, right? So, those are the, it's a kind of an oblique reference to his victims. Mm -hmm. But here here are the people who gave up their lives for this episode. Mm-hmm. Number one was, of course, the very famous and charismatic Lamplighter. 
who is mystified by why his lamp burst back into flames after he extinguished it and then was savagely killed for his impudence. In the rewatch, what I noticed is the second time when he turns when he turns around and the second time that the light gets turned off, you can see Lestat like shoot by. Flash by, right? Yeah. Um, then, of course, Paul who sadly took his own life mm -hmm. um, by uh, leaping off the roof. Uh, the third uh, unfortunate soul, I guess we can say, was Lily, who we don't see her death, but it's reported later. They're like, oh, yeah, we found her under the dock or whatever with, mm -hmm. you know, and the fever just burned all the blood out of her. I'm like, well, doesn't sound super scientific, possibly a vampire. <laughs> um, and then, of course, in the uh, final scene, uh, both priests just get it, right? They're just taken out. By Lestat in his rage, right? Yeah, so so he, his, his father's temper gets the best of yeah, him sometimes. So sometimes his father's temper makes him eat two men of the cloth. Right? <laughs> and I guess you could even argue Louis. I have to include Louis, of course. Because he's now dead. Well, that's true, but... Oh, undead, yeah, yeah, so undead, he is undead, undead. He's undead. <laughs> One thing that I noted about the scene when Lestat killed the two priests is he's so angry that they're he's angry oh, at he their hates, priests. Well, and he has a lot of reasons for that, right? right because he was, of course, also raised in the church, went to uh, you know church, uh, went to a monastery to try to learn. They wouldn't teach him what he wanted, at least in the book. But you know he he tells you exactly why he hates. Yeah. God. He said, this charlatan, why did you, why, about the priest, he said, why, why do you turn to this charlatan or whatever yeah. he says about him? And he's so angry about the Well, because priestess. God didn't, <laughs> God didn't intercede in his misery when he right. was a human, which by the way, I have some sympathy for that view, mm -hmm. that point of view. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's certainly understandable. So, uh, so we had a, a rough body count of five to six, depending on whether you count Louie or not. I suspect there will be more in future episodes. I also have five confirmed deaths because I included Louie. I did not include Paul um, because I want to keep a count of how many people each vampire kills and see what we can come up with at the end of the season. But I have something, as usual, controversial. Shocking. That, yeah, I know. I have five confirmed kills. And one suspected. Oh, yeah. I think Lestat got into Paul's head and ultimately had him kill himself. I think that is a reasonable take because he did oh, talk about he did talk how about he the, longed for yeah. the flagstone. He, but you could see Paul as a threat, right? Because yeah, sure. they, they were close. He doesn't want anyone to be close to Louis right at this moment other than himself. And it, it, he was a burden. And maybe he thought if I present this dark gift to Louis, maybe he'll say no because he needs to take care of his brother. Mm -hmm. That is yes, a that's an excellent pretty topic. good point, Joanne. I like that a lot. I'm so freaking smart! It's amazing. It's it really is. Really, wow. I mean, I'm a little I'm surprised I'm, myself. I'm impressed. <laughs> uh, that is, uh, yeah, that's a great read on that, Joanne. I really like it a lot and it makes sense within the context of the of the episode for sure so joanne is really is proposing that we run some kind of fantasy vampire league here <laughs> see I, I, I feel like i feel i feel like 
I feel like Lestat might be the Tom Brady of this league here. Like, if you get Lestat, you're definitely going to win. My money is on Claudia. <laughs> well, I, I, agree. I mean, she is a psychopath. There's no doubt. <laughs> she will be. So, Mark, what are your final thoughts on episode one? I think at the very least, if you were, if you had hopes and dreams for this show, your hopes and dreams have been at least for episode one fulfilled. There's really no major criticisms. I don't think that you can level at this episode. It's everything you wanted it to be. It was brilliantly acted, beautifully shot, tightly written. I just think it was an amazing, amazing first episode. We have every right to be excited to see where it goes from here. I agree. I think that the way that they have included these elements from the book that were missing, the the, the Christian side of it, the struggle with religiosity, that's back in it. I like the fact that they are highlighting instead of subtextualizing the homosexual relationship and it is a romance. It is a, they are physically very attracted to one another, but Lestat is in on the romance. He's saying, I love you, Louis. And Louis comes back with, as he's describing it, for the first time, I felt seen. But no, like for him to say, I felt seen, it's, it's all, it's love. It's, it's, Intimacy. Louis mentions it. Drinking Lestat's blood, it was this form of intimacy that he has with him that, you know, mortals can't even experience. I think that that's one of the best and most exciting things about this is just the way it's not exactly the book, but it is enough the book. It is the spirit of the book. It is the kernel of the plot points. It's it's very good, and I am really looking forward to digging into some of these bigger issues, race and sexuality, and, and how that's going to play out uh, with these characters throughout, well, now seven, up, seven episodes and then a, a whole second season. Yes. Joanne, what about you? So for me, you know, I'm obviously the show is tackling these major issues, like you said, race, religion, sexuality, violence. You've got all of that. We know, you know, to expect that. But I really am enjoying the very subtle little moments of humor within the show. Mark, I know you had said in the last episode, like, I hope it's not campy. So far, it's really not. It's just kind of, you know, just like everything else, kind of well-written into place. One of my favorite moments was when they're playing cards and the, the alderman and the other guy are talking about, you know, all these bodies and, and they suspected some sort of rat. And Lestat says, yes, a six foot rat. <laughs> and they kind of look at him and he says, oh, we called him a bureaucrat, you know, and tries to make a joke of it. And, and that was just very clever. It wasn't campy. It was clever. We, we've got all the elements of the book, like we said, but we also have this little extra bonus now of where we're going to see some humor injected into their life. Christina, you had brought up in one of our earlier episodes about how it would be kind of neat to see the good times. And I think we're going to get to see that. And I'm 100% confident it's going to be just you know, done as well as everything else has been done thus far. So before we close out tonight's episode, I just want to relay this important information. If you or someone you know is struggling with thoughts of suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK. That's 
888-888-8255 or go to www.suicidepreventionlifeline.org for resources and support. Please remember, you are not alone. We hope you guys enjoyed our very first episode about the interview with the vampire AMC series as much as we've enjoyed watching and re-watching this episode and digging into it. So we invite you to follow us on our social media and drop us a line and let us know how we're doing, what we can improve and what you're enjoying. Our podcast Twitter is at vampire underscore insider. And you can also follow us on our personal Twitter accounts as well. Christina is at Christina Gen X. Mark is at Mark East Peach. And I am at just lock me underscore one. We hope you will come back and listen to us again. And if you've enjoyed us, please remember to share us with all of your friends. Thank you, guys. Have a great night. Bye. Peace out, Cub Scouts. But she gets it wrong every time. Every time you say Grey Worm, Christina Christina goes, Sam, I I mean, Jacob Anderson. Exactly. I can only think of Sam. You know why? Because he's Grey Worm. And through the power of editing, I do. <laughs> Vampire Insider is a conceptual ozone LLC podcast. Please direct all business inquiries to vampireinsider at gmail.com. All rights reserved.